We spent the past week on our family's farm in Clay Center, Kansas. Have you heard of Clay Center, Kansas? Not a lot of people have. It's about a town of 5,000, smack dab in the middle of Kansas. And it was very sobering to walk around the property where decades of my wife's family lived and worked for over 100 years. Where there was once life, there is now only structures and homes built by people long gone. My wife's family came over in 1885 from Germany. They were butchers, farmers, four generations of people lived on that farm. It's a place of history. It's fun to go and see what life was like, even though we're not milking cows and and raising cows and doing all that stuff. There are people still working that land, farming on that farm, raising livestock, growing harvests. It's interesting to be there. It's, it's, it's relaxing to be there. It's quiet. The internet's not great. So uh, we get to relax. Years ago, while touristing Manhattan, New York, my family went to Ellis Island. And if you don't know, Ellis Island is where a number of immigrants would come over and get registered to live in the United States. And so we went there and we got on a little machine and I found one of my ancestors. We were able to find one of our ancestors that came over from Italy hundreds of years ago as America was being built. We don't, we don't think about where we come from often, do we? I mean, sometimes we, we'll do that DNA test online or we'll look up our genealogy. We'll pay somebody 200 bucks to, to look up our genealogy. But most of us don't know where we come from or how we really got here. Maybe we have somewhat of a vague idea. I don't think we think about our past as nearly as much as we should. We don't have a detailed genealogy that tells us every single detail about our history. It's very different than in the ancient world. In the ancient world, Jews kept extensive genealogies to establish a person's heritage or inheritance or to justify a ruler's rank and or status. Your family tree, your genealogy was of great importance. And so you knew it. You knew where you came from. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And let's be honest. These are passages of scripture that most of us skip or skim over in our year-long Bible reading plans. We get to a genealogy and we're like, it's just a a list of names. And so I'm just going to go ahead and You know, I didn't read the whole Bible because I'm not going to read all these names. I mean, come on now. I'm just going to skip over these names and get to the, you know, the good stuff. Well, I'm going to encourage you to to slow down at times when you're reading through genealogies, especially the genealogy we find in Matthew chapter 1. Because God, through Matthew, in this genealogy, is trying to tell us something very important about Jesus. He's trying to communicate specific truths about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So turn to Matthew 1. Matthew is the first book in our New Testament in the Gospels. Have God's Word in front of you, uh, either by the phone. Uh, I love having it in physical form on paper that I can write down, I can take notes, that sort of thing. So turn to Matthew 1.1. This is how it starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on to list a bunch of names 
that you would hate to be called on to read in a community group because you'd be like, how do I say all these names? Uh, But look at that first verse, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So to truly understand what Matthew is doing here, we need to look at these first two people, two of the main people on the list, David and Abraham, Abraham and David. Abraham was the first of the Hebrew patriarchs. Way back in Genesis 12, God promises that through Abraham's line, a great nation will be built and all of the nations will be blessed. So he gives Abraham a promise. Through you, you'll become a great nation and all the nations will be blessed. Through your line, through your seed. David was a warrior king. He was not a perfect man, but he was a man after God's heart. And way back in 2 Samuel 7, God gives another promise, this time to David, that from his royal line, there will be a forever king, a king of kings, an eternal king who will rule on an eternal throne forever. So these are two big promises. After these promises, shortly after David's rule and reign, Israel is conquered by the Babylonians, by the Persians and the Romans. It was a period of exile, of of subjugation and slavery and persecution. During this period, God's people did what? They waited for these promises to be fulfilled. Man, we're being persecuted, we're being subjugated, we're being taken from our homes. God, come and fulfill these promises to be a blessing, to build this nation, to be a blessing to all nations, and come and rule and reign forever because what we're going through right now is difficult. And so they wait and they wait and there are prophets that pop up from time to time. And they waited for this Messiah who they believed would overthrow their Roman oppressors. He would usher in a new political kingdom and make Israel great again. So they wait. They're prophets from time to time. And then for 400 years, God goes quiet. He's silent. Does not speak to any prophets does not speak to his people. 400 years. And out of the darkness, Matthew speaks. Look at verse 2 through 17. Abraham was the father of Isaac. I'm sorry, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. I'm going to have you underline a few names here. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, is Hezron the father of Ram. So I just said the name Tamar in verse 3. Underline that name. Take note of that name. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Underline the name Rahab. Underline the name Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Underline Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we see from generation how we get from Abraham to David. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. Underline the wife of Uriah. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. So then we get from David to, to deportation. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. I like that name. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. I like that name too. I like all these names. Just, we just start naming our kids Shealtiel. Hey, this is Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. And they're like, you're either Jewish uh, or... Yeah, these are old names. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Man, a lot of names there. Let's pretend like you're a first century reader. You know nothing of who Matthew is trying to introduce to you. You know nothing of this Jesus character. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Yeshua or Yahashua, which literally means Yahweh saves. So Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. God saves. Christ isn't his last name. It didn't say on his license plate, Christ, Jesus. His brother wasn't James Christ. Christ is the Greek form of of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ equals Messiah, which really just means the anointed one. So let's put all this together. He's the son of David, king. Write down the word king. The son of Abraham. Write down the word blessing. Matthew is communicating a lot here. The one who saves, the anointed one, the king of kings, the blessing to all nations is here. That's verse one. (laughs) This genealogy establishes that the promised Messiah King has come. The promised Messiah King has come. And if we continue to read Matthew, we know that to the shock of of many in Jesus's day, Jesus didn't come to wage war on Rome and establish an earthly kingdom. He came to wage war on sin and, and death by taking our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven and through faith enter into his heavenly kingdom. The Messiah came to save us from sin. We often say about Christmas, he is the reason for the season. People do that white, foamy, looks like snow stuff in their window and they write, he is the reason for the season. That, that's true in a sense, but the real reason for the season is sin. That looks a little less attractive on your... Sin is the reason 
for the season. Your neighbors probably won't talk to you anymore if you throw that. The Messiah came to save us from sin. If there were no sin, there would be no need for a Savior to come. There would be no need for Christmas. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So God so loved the world that he gave. He sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So as we celebrate this, this coming king, we, we need to remember why exactly this promised Messiah had to come. And that was sin. This genealogy is also very comprehensive. I'm sorry, it's not comprehensive. There are omissions, which wasn't uncommon. Not every name in Jesus's lineage and Jesus' genealogy is provided here. There, there are omissions. Again, not an uncommon thing in antiquity and history. But Matthew makes sure to include some intriguing individuals. He's trying to tell us something about Jesus. I had you underline four, four names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. Tamar lied and slept with her father-in-law. That's some Jerry Springer stuff. The name Rahab means pride, insolence, savagery. She was a Canaanite, great enemies of God's people, and a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, a people group with its origin in incest and known for sexual immorality. That's some Game of Thrones stuff. Then we have the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, the one who committed adultery with David. The inclusion of these women is, is shocking in and of itself. Women were not usually used in ge genealogies. Second, Every one of these women is a foreigner. They were Gentiles, not part of God's chosen people. Third, they're all associated with sin. You're like, why are you picking on the women so much, Larry? What's the deal? Well, well the men on this list aren't exactly champions of faith either. Rehoboam, 18 wives. That's some sister wives stuff going on there. <laughs> 60 concubines. Kids, if you don't know what a concubine is, ask your parents. You'll have a great ride home. <laughs> he overtaxed people to support his lifestyle. Uh, Jehoram murdered his brothers to eliminate rivals. Ahaz sacrificed children. I mean, if I was Matthew introducing the world to Jesus, I, I would have been tempted to do what? Clean up this genealogy. Make this genealogy a bit more respectable. Put an Instagram filter on this genealogy. Please round off the, the rough edges. You know, my list would be nothing but superstars. But here's the problem. Even when you look at the superstars of the Bible, <laughs> you know that even those superstars are flawed and fall short. Abraham was a liar who didn't trust the promise of God for an heir so he slept with another woman. David was an adulterer who killed his mistress's husband in a cowardly fashion. I mean, Matthew doesn't use an Instagram filter to beautify the ugliness of this genealogy. Jesus' family tree is jacked up. 
It's full of broken branches and knots. So what is God trying to communicate to us about, about Jesus here? By showcasing the sordid details of Jesus' family tree, God uses this genealogy, and I want you to hear me. He uses this genealogy to emphasize that no, no matter how bad you are, no matter where you come from, male, female, rich, poor, religious, irreligious, Republican, Democrat, tall, short, left-handed, right-handed, Jew, Gentile. You got a, you got a record. You know, you've been squeaky clean most of your life. There's room for you to be a part of God's family tree. There's room for you to be a part of God's family tree. The promised Messiah has come for all types of people. He has come for all types of people. He came to, to bless all nations. He came to bless all types. So many believe that their, their past sins have disqualified them from becoming a child of God. Man, I just, I, I messed up yesterday even and the day before that. And, and, and I got a rap sheet that if, if you knew about, you would not invite me into your church building, let alone would God invite me into his family. My past is just too jacked up, too, too messed up. I'm not good enough. I've made too many mistakes. God couldn't love someone like me. I mean, if God's grace can cover the sin of this motley crew of, of these jabronis, he can handle your junk. His grace can cover your sin. We have been saved by grace. It is not, listen to me, it's not about you being good enough. That's not the gospel. It's not about you being good enough. It's about putting our faith in the one who is good in our place. Now that should result in a life of thankfulness and good works. But when it comes to be, being a child of God, it is grace, it is grace, it is grace. For by grace we've been saved, not through works so that no one can boast. We boast in the fact that Christ was good on our behalf and gave his life for us to cover our sins. In fact, God only saves sinners, <laughs> including those with a long list of, of past sins. I've shared this, this illustration before, but it, it's, it's just too perfect. When we were newlyweds in, in Kansas City or uh, in Topeka, we, we, you know, we didn't have kids yet. And so we got dog fever and, you know, we were like, oh, let's get a dog. It's a, a fur baby. Uh, we talked about that last week. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, we're going to get a dog. This is like practice for a kid sort of situation. And so we went to the Topeka Pound. I, they, they don't call it a pound anymore. They call it like the Friends League or something like that. Or, uh, but we, and, and, you know, at the Topeka Pound, what, what are you going to expect to see? Like ugly dogs? Tortured? Uh, uh, you know, angry dogs? Ugly dogs? Angry dogs? Old dogs? You know, hey, this is, this is Bunny. 
She needs about $1,000 of medication each month. Her quality of life is a negative one, but let's keep her going. Do you want to adopt her? And so, you know, and, and that's what your expectation is when you're walking into the Topeka, uh, you know, uh, adoption dog agency. And, and it did not disappoint. It lived up and exceeded expectations. It looked like somebody had been doing genetic experiments on dogs. There was, there was one dog with like a, like a Labrador body, but a basset hound head. There was one dog that looked like, uh, looked like a gremlin. Remember the movie Gremlins with the giant ears? Looked like it was on crack. Uh, there, was a dog, there was a bunch of dogs in the corner playing craps for everybody, smoking cigarettes. Um, and so we, you know, we're not very tough people sometimes. We're like, this, nope. This isn't for us. And so we went and bought a, a crazy expensive little puppy that was cute and cuddly. Thankfully, God is not like that. God looks at all the mangy dogs, the dogs that nobody wants, the type of people that nobody would ever expect. And he's like the old man who comes around back. He opens up his station wagon and he says, I don't care what you are. I don't care if you've bitten people before. I don't care if you're rough, you got scars, get in. Get in. I'll take you. You can be my child. He does the same thing with us. He opens up his arms wide and he says, I don't, I don't care who you've bitten in the past. I don't care what you have done. I don't care what your life has, has looked like. You can be a part of my family by placing your faith and trust in my son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And guess what? You can be a part of my family from here on out. You have a family. And I'm your father. And I'll guide you. And I'll protect you. Jesus' genealogy shows us he's come for all types of people. He also came through all types of people. Many of those in Jesus' genealogy were outsiders, outcasts, encased in scandal, yet God made them a central part of the greatest story in all of history. And we see this in the New Testament as well. Jesus didn't choose world-renowned teachers. He didn't choose influential politicians and rabbis to be his disciples. He chose peasant fishermen, a despised tax collector, an insurrectionist. He used unexpected people to accomplish his plan. This is the pattern all throughout biblical history, and it's the same for us today. I mean, we have a picture in our head of, of, of the guy or, or woman, uh, the male or female that God can use, and it ain't me. Now, they're, they're usually, you know, they're, they're good looking. You know, they're young, they're smart, they dress really stylish, they're eloquent and well-spoken. They're fun to be around and gregarious. Those are the type of people that, that God, they're good at public speaking. They got all these gifts. I'm not, man, I'm an anxious mess. I mean, if you ask me to speak publicly, I'm going to sweat through my clothes. Probably, pass. God can't use someone like me. If God can use these people, he can use someone like like you when it comes to accomplishing something great for God. Humility, humility 
is tremendously more valuable than ability. Humility. Humility says, yeah, God, I may be weak, but you are not. You are strong. You are able. When we say God can't use someone like me to to teach kids, God can't use someone like me to to lead a small group. God can't use someone like like me to reach my neighbors. You're not only limiting yourself, you're actually limiting the author, creator, and sustainer of the universe. He, he, he split seas. And he brought people back from the dead. He can help you share the gospel with your coworkers. God has time and time again accomplished his plans through those who embrace their weakness. It's kind of his thing. It's his M.O. I love using people who need to trust and rely on me. In fact, I I give grace to the humble and I, I oppose the proud. The reason when God works through our low status or weakness, who gets the glory? He does. We get to sit back and watch what he's doing. He came for all types of people. He came through all types of people. Think about how wonderful these truths are for for you and me. Plucked from a genealogy at the very beginning of Matthew. Thousands of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, God's plans were unfolding. Salvation was coming. The blessing to all nations. The King of Kings. And while Jesus was perfect, we didn't get to him through perfect people. And now 2,000 years after his death and resurrection, his plan is still unfolding, and he calls you and me to take part in it. No matter who we are, no matter what we have done, or how skilled we are, we're to share the gospel with lost people before Jesus comes back. We're to love and serve so that others may see Christ working in us. We're to live out our life in fellowship and unity with other people. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how gifted you are, you're called to such things. The king came for and through all types of people. And he will continue to save and work through all types of people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.